Welcome to the Westminster Pulpit, an extension of the worship ministry at Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format, and may this sermon nurture your life in a meaningful way as we proclaim our Savior. We now join our senior pastor, Dr. Chris Walker. This morning we are looking to God's Word as we prepare to go to the table, and I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 10. Well, here we are in the second half of Mark, Mark chapter 10. We're following Jesus as He journeys south from Caesarea Philippi, down through Galilee, through Capernaum, toward Jerusalem where He will accomplish His mission as the Messiah, suffering, dying, and then rising again. And as we pick up in chapter 10, uh, Jesus has moved down from Capernaum. He's moving south again into the region of Judea and then across the river to the eastern side of the Jordan. Now, we've already seen a number of times in Mark that the scribes and the Pharisees are very much aware of Jesus, and they've been sending delegations out to keep tabs on him, and we've seen sparks fly between Jesus and the scribes and the Pharisees. But What we're going to notice here in the coming chapters is that the closer Jesus gets to Jerusalem, the more intense the testing and opposition he will face from the religious leaders. And we'll begin to see that in our text today. So we want to jump in and read Mark 10, verses 1 through 12 together. This is God's Word. And he left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan, And crowds gathered to him again. And again, as was his custom, he taught them. And the Pharisees came up and, in order to test him, asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, What did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment, but from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate." And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter, and he said to them, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Let's pray. God, this is your word that you've given us, and it addresses a topic that is uh, so close to us in marriage. Uh, But we pray that you would give us understanding this morning, that we might... Follow your word and understand your word, and so honor and glorify you. And we pray it for Christ's sake. Amen. It's probably no secret that the pervasity of divorce in our culture has led to a jaded view of marriage in the first place. In his book on marriage, Tim Keller discusses the widespread negativity about marriage that he encounters in New York City in his ministry because of the unhappiness and the damage that divorce has wreaked on so many of them and their families. He cites a a 2008 documentary which interviewed 50 divorced couples on the breakup of their marriage. And it was a New York Times reporter, not not a believer, but a New York Times reporter 
who commented on that documentary and said it gives a grim, if not entirely apocalyptic, view of marriage relationships. Christopher Ashe, in his book on marriage, tells of coming across an advertisement several years ago for a new business venture. This new business was renting wedding rings because so many of them were discarded within just a few years of the marriage due to divorce. Of course, none of this should surprise us because as a society, we've discarded God's pattern and intent for marriage in favor of a relationship that's worth preserving only as long as it benefits me. And if that's our approach, it's not surprising that it would fall apart. But as we grieve the damage of divorce in our society, we turn to Mark 10 only to find that Jesus confronted an approach that was not significantly better. Our passage this morning exposes an attitude in Israel that was radically impoverished from God's intention for marriage from the beginning. And so we see Jesus turn to the book of Genesis to remind the Pharisees of God's intention for marriage from the beginning. And that's really the key focus this morning. God's intention for marriage from the beginning. And my hope today is to look first at the Pharisees' logic and then at Jesus' logic in order to uncover God's perspective on marriage and then on divorce. So let's begin by looking at the Pharisees' logic. We find the Pharisees' logic in verses 1 through 4. As Jesus moved into Judea and the, the region across the Jordan, the crowds continued to flock to him. And as the crowds continue to flock to him, Jesus continues to teach the crowds And if we've read up to this point in Mark, we're not surprised that again a delegation from the Pharisees comes and doesn't just sit back and listen, but inserts themselves into the center, interrupts Jesus' uh, teaching, and questions him. I want you to note in verse 2 that Mark says the Pharisees came up in order to test him. In other words, the Pharisees' question here is not a question of curiosity, And their question is not even meant to debate something Jesus said. The intention of Jesus' question, or excuse me, the Pharisees' question, is to test Jesus. It's to put him in a bind and get him into trouble. That is their goal. In this case, the Pharisees' question arises from a common debate about divorce in their own day. This debate went back to Deuteronomy 24, where God addressed the situation of a man who would uh, lose favor with his wife because of some undecency and so issue her a certificate of divorce. And the debate in Jesus' day was, was this losing favor because of some indecency referring to a moral indecency? In other words, a, a husband would discover sexual immorality in his wife and therefore would issue a certificate of divorce, or was losing favor or indecency referring to anything, any cause that would cause her to, or him to lose favor with her, and therefore he could divorce her. And there were two schools of thought. One school maintained the stricter view that sexual immorality was the only allowable reason for divorce, but this was very much the minority view in Israel in the first century. Uh, by far the most took the wider view that any cause of loss of favor was suitable cause for divorce. And we have a number of examples of rabbinic teaching from this time period. One rabbi states that if uh, a wife burned dinner, that was an indecency that justified divorce. Another rabbi taught that if a man found a woman who was more attractive 
That caused uh, him to lose favor with his wife. That justified divorce given the wording of Deuteronomy 24. So this gives us an insight into the circumstances that Jesus was speaking to in which really a man could divorce his wife for just about any reason according to the uh, broader teaching of the day. This same discussion in Mark is recorded in Matthew 19, and I think Matthew makes it even clearer that the Pharisees were inviting Jesus to step into this debate. The question was not whether it is ever legal to divorce. Everyone agreed there were some times that this was necessary. The question, as Matthew 19.3 puts it, was, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause or for any reason, as the text could be translated? And it seems that the Pharisees are trying to pin Jesus to one side or other in this debate and so embroil him in the same controversies, in the same knots that they themselves fell into in the discussion. There may also be an added element since the eastern side of the Jordan River is the very place that John the Baptist was teaching when he was beheaded for uh, teaching that uh, Herod could not divorce his wife. So maybe there's a political element here, but it seems the Pharisees are trying to tie Jesus into sides in this debate. What we'll notice, of course, is that every time the Pharisees tried to get Jesus into trouble with a question that they think will really trip him up this time, Jesus consistently cuts through the horns of their question by turning to Scripture. We saw it when Jesus responded to Satan. We saw it when he responds to the Pharisees. And in doing so, Jesus demonstrates again and again the clarity and the sufficiency of God's word to guide us in the questions in front of us. And in doing so, he also exposes the fact that the problem with the Pharisees' question was their own logic and thinking in the first place. Here it is, just that case. We've already seen this with the Pharisees on a number of occasions. Think about the Sabbath day. With the Sabbath, the Pharisees had completely lost God's original intent for the Sabbath day and had instead created 39 categories of things you couldn't do on Saturday. And here again, it seems that the Pharisees are trying to establish a proliferating list of reasons you were allowed to get divorced and have completely forgotten about God's original intent for marriage in the first place. Verse 4, you see the Pharisees' logic. Jesus asks them, well, what does God's word say? What did Moses command you? And they say, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. In other words, in the Pharisees' minds, Moses said we could give a certificate of divorce. So divorce is perfectly fine and good as long as we get the list of allowable reasons right. And that's the faulty logic of the Pharisees. But Jesus responds in verses 5 to 9, and I want to turn and look at Jesus' logic and how it undercuts the Pharisees. And it does so in two ways. In verse 5, Jesus denies that whatever the Mosaic law allows is therefore right and good. He argues that Deuteronomy's guidelines for divorce are there because of mankind's sin and the hardness of their heart, not because it expresses God's desire for marriage. And after all, if you were to turn back to Deuteronomy 24, it's very apparent in the words. Because Deuteronomy 24.1 does not say, if this happens, go ahead and get a divorce. It says, if a man puts his wife away in divorce, here is how this should be limited and how she should be protected in that situation. And so it's very clear from the beginning that this is not expressing God's will, but is limiting the impact of sin. 
And I think this is a very helpful framework for us when it comes to understanding God's Old Testament law in the first place. At times, the Mosaic law expresses God's desire and will for a particular situation. But at other times, the law was written to protect the vulnerable from the wreckage of sin that takes place in society. So God, for instance, never says that polygamy or slavery or divorce is his will and that it's right and good. And yet, all clearly contradict his will from the beginning. But what God does in the Mosaic law for Israel's good is he does not ignore these widespread realities due to sin and the hardness of their hearts. Instead, he gives them laws that regulate those sins and does so in a way that protects the vulnerable from the destructive impact of sin. And so this is part of the nature of the Old Testament law, and it's Jesus' first point. Pharisees, you're wrong. This doesn't show that divorce is all fine and good. It is there to limit the impact and the destruction of sin. But then in verses 6 to 9, Jesus turns back to Genesis 1 and 2 to remind the Pharisees of what God's will for marriage was in the first place. From the beginning, God made them male and female, and he intended a man to leave his father and mother and to hold fast to his wife. And when the two become husband and wife, they cease to be two people and they become one flesh. That was God's plan for marriage from the beginning. If you read Jesus' words carefully here, they express such a beautiful truth. So they say that God joins a husband and wife together. In other words, Jesus seems to imply that becoming one flesh is not merely a descriptive comment that a husband and wife become one physically or in reputation. It seems to say that when a man and woman come together in marriage, God acts and actively makes them one together. It's a fascinating comment, but I think it perfectly reflects what God says in Malachi 2. You may remember that Malachi 2 was a passage when God was condemning Israel for their divorces in society. And in Malachi 2, 14 and 15, it says this, The Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Did not God make them one in spirit in their union? Or as it could be translated, did not God make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? In other words, if we follow the words here of what God's saying, when a wedding happens, God is first of all the witness who enforces the covenant made between a husband and wife. But not only that, God then acts to unite these two to be one in spirit as well as in body. And for mankind to separate that union is to break their vow before God, and it is also to rip apart a union that God had established. And so, says Jesus, God's will is quite clear from the beginning. God makes a husband and wife one, so no, it is not lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason. That interpretation and understanding of the law is wrong. Now, as so often happens, when the disciples are hanging out with Jesus in the house later, they ask him about this topic. And when they do, Jesus takes it a step further. He says, if God does not recognize your divorce in the first place, then in his eyes, you are still one. And in that case, a subsequent remarriage is effectively equivalent to adultery. 
And this statement, of course, makes perfect sense. If you are still one flesh in God's eyes, union with a different person becomes adultery. Now, this logic was so radical in Jesus' day that according to Matthew 19.10, the disciples started discussing with one another if maybe it was wiser to just not get married at all in the first place. But here's Jesus' logic. The Old Testament regulated divorce as a necessary protection against sin, but it was not God's intent for marriage from the beginning. From the beginning, he made the male and female And in marriage, he joins that man and woman together to be one flesh. Therefore, a man does not have the prerogative to casually separate what God has joined together. That is God's will for marriage from the beginning. Now, without a doubt, this immediately raises a number of questions. Questions about marriage and certainly questions about divorce. And I want to take a minute to try to walk through these together. We need to begin by affirming again, because of the, the, the tone and the approach of our culture that even can impact our church, we need to affirm again Jesus' teaching that divorce is not God's will for marriage. It is not a right, and it is not a loophole. So against the culture's view that marriage is meant to make me happy, and if it does not make me happy, then divorce is the best option or one I need to make for my own good— No, we need to affirm that from the beginning of creation, it was not so. Against maybe even the view of some in the church that we try our best at marriage, but if it doesn't work, God doesn't want me to be miserable, surely. And surely he would be okay with this because of my lazy spouse or my workaholic spouse. Against this, we need to affirm a husband and wife are not two, but one flesh. And what God has joined together, man should not separate And this is why marriage should not be entered lightly or casually, but with reverence before God, recognizing the significance of a vow that's made before Him. Now, as we look at this and as we say this carefully but clearly, right up front, maybe there is someone here this morning who would say, well, that is me. I've disobeyed that. I've gone against God's will in my divorce. Where does that leave me? Well, We dare not sweep it under the rug or casually say it doesn't matter because we're talking about the will of a holy God here. But if we come to recognize sin in our lives, then we are invited by God in Scripture to repent of that sin and to seek God's forgiveness based on Christ's shed blood for us. And if you do recognize sin and repent of it and come to Christ looking to his shed blood, then you need to hear and to believe the words of 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sin, he is faithful and he is just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. For those who do come to Christ with such a confession, to Christ who died to take the penalty of our sin, to redeem us and to restore us to God, there is plentiful redemption. So come and find grace for your souls. This is the first thing we need to affirm. But now, having established God's intention for marriage against divorce, we need to think carefully about what Scripture does say about divorce. Now, careful thinking is not a strong point today. It is a lot easier to just pick the conclusion I like without going to all of the work to make sure that conclusion follows from the facts. In my house, we try to use logic carefully, but we also have this thing that we call Ben logic, 
And I checked with my son. He was very glad uh, for me to share this. You can guess on your own which son this is named after. Uh, But uh, Ben logic functions very differently. It can be a lot of fun and also quite annoying since you're at liberty to come to any conclusion you want for whatever reason you want. So we're going to try to not do that today. We're going to try to think carefully and logically. And I want to give you three statements that I believe build on Jesus' words here in Mark and elsewhere in Scripture. So here's, here's the first statement. Follow with me here. Jesus here was not dismissing the fact that because of the wreckage of sin in this life, divorce is at times a needed protection against the violation of the marriage covenant. I'm going to say that again. Because of the wreckage of sin in this life, divorce is at times a needed protection against the violation of the marriage covenant. And Jesus does not dismiss that fact. That's statement number one. But here's statement number two. God is the one who determines what those situations are, not us. We don't get to just decide, well, this is a hard situation, so I must be able to... uh, Sin's involved here, so I must be okay to do whatever I want. No, God is the one who determines what those situations are. Jesus clearly states in Matthew 5.32 and Matthew 19.9 that sexual immorality is one violation of the marriage covenant that can give grounds for divorce. It doesn't require divorce, but it does give grounds for divorce, for the protection of the offended spouse. In 1 Corinthians 7.15, Paul adds a second scenario, the case of a a spouse who abandons another as an unbeliever or demonstrating his unbelief in the Lord, abandoning the spouse, in which case a believer is free from the violated marriage covenant. These are the scenarios that Scripture gives us to protect the vulnerable in a sin-wracked world. So that's the second thing we need to, to say. Third, Jesus' logic here in Mark 10 is quite clear, verses 11 through 12. The logic is that remarriage is adultery when God views the original marriage as still intact. When God views them as still one flesh, to be remarried would be equivalent to adultery. However, if that marriage covenant is not still intact... If God does not oppose divorce because of sexual immorality or abandonment that he gives in Scripture, then remarriage is no longer considered adultery. Jesus' language in Matthew 19.9 and the language in Deuteronomy 24 clearly assume remarriage in certain situations. And when that marriage covenant has been violated in ways that God himself recognizes, then that leaves an offended spouse free to remarry. So just to summarize, if a spouse leaves their marriage because it's hard or for just any reason, they must remain unmarried or be reconciled to their spouse, Paul says. But if sexual infidelity or abandonment has destroyed the marriage covenant, the offended spouse may remarry, according to the logic of Scripture, as I understand it. Now, probably the most common follow-up question today is, well, what about an abusive marriage? And to answer that question, it's important right off the bat to distinguish between what the Bible calls oppression, a persistent pattern of punishing, controlling, harm to another person, from the broad use of abuse today, which can include almost anything that is inconvenient or that I don't like or that makes life hard for me. We need to make a distinction there. 
Our denomination's study report on abuse in marriage, I think, makes this point very well. It states, abuse is not about a general feeling of being hurt by another or about having to endure hardship because of another person's weaknesses. That's not what we mean when we talk about abuse. Spousal abuse incurs in concrete behaviors that can be named and defined based on biblical description and example. And when it comes to the biblical definition of oppression, I believe that divorce is again legitimate according to Scripture, and I believe so for three reasons. The first reason I say this is again based on Scripture's logic, that divorce is a protection for the vulnerable in the face of a violation of the marriage covenant due to the wreckage of sin in this life. And I believe that this biblical understanding of oppression fits this category that Scripture states. But second, more directly from Scripture, is the Old Testament's repeated command, not just allowance, but command to God's people to rescue the afflicted from their oppressors. And those commands come in the context of when those oppressors are in God-established authority roles. Government roles, God-established roles, when they are oppressing God's people, we are commanded to rescue those who are oppressed. And then my third reason is based on the consistent interpretation of the Reformers and the Puritans. So this is not amidst our current cultural discussion. Going back to the Puritans and the Reformers, who consistently said that a man who abandons his wife and a man who drives his wife away through wicked oppression are equally perpetrators against the marriage covenant and equally condemned by Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 7. So it is the logic of these three scriptural reasons that makes me conclude that abuse, as biblically defined, meets the biblical grounds for divorce. And I would be quick to say... Most of us should not self-diagnose these things. You need the wisdom of God's people and God's church and those around you to help you. But let me say, some of you might worry. You say, well, boy, Chris, that's all well and good, but it sure seems like you're creating more circles of exceptions here that allow divorce, and it sure seems like you're right back in the place the Pharisees were. And of course, if we take what we've just said and hunt for good reasons to get divorces— we are right back in the shoes of the Pharisees. But if we remain committed to Jesus' words, that these are a protection for the afflicted, not a loophole for divorce for the reasons we want, if we continue to go back to God's will for marriage and intent from the beginning, we can remain committed to His words and the commitment of our vows before Him while also following His command to rescue those spouses who have been hurt through the violation of marriage covenant in sexual immorality, abandonment, and abuse as he lays out in his word. This, as I understand it, is the most consistent understanding of marriage and divorce from Scripture. All right, that was dense and heavy. It was a lot to think through. But let's finish by stepping back for a minute to consider how Jesus' words might consider applying to us in our marriages or as we approach marriage. So first, for those of you who are not yet married, consider Jesus' words. Jesus tells us that marriage was God's good idea from the beginning. So don't fall for the cultural cynicism about marriage. Marriage was God's idea and it is His good's gift. Don't believe that it is too hard or too restrictive of your freedom. Now I will admit it does seem surprising that something like marriage can work out. 
After all, marriage is when you take two thorough sinners and have them live as closely together as possible so that all their sins scrape against each other. And if that weren't enough, it seems like an idea doomed to fail from the beginning, but then marriage also brings together people who are so different. In a marriage, you you get the the spendthrift, the splurger, with the thrift store shopper. You get the homebody and the world traveler. You get the athlete in the book room. Bookworm. You, You have book room. Yeah, you could get an athlete in a book room, perhaps. Some marriages even try to get an Eagles fan and a Cowboys fan together. So you get all these differences, you put them in, in one marriage, and you think, how is this going to work? But, but marriage is God's idea and God's gift to us. And when lived before God, for His glory, not just for ourselves, marriage sanctifies us, it strengthens us, it equips us to honor Him, And enables us to bless others like nothing else can. Of course, if marriage is God's idea, this means marriage will work when we do it His way. We are to follow His instructions because He's God and we are to obey Him and because He knows what's best for us. It shouldn't surprise us that the highest divorce rates in the country are among those who live together before they are married. Because God created sex for the security of marriage. And we sacrifice his good plan by trying to get the pleasure without the commitment. So when we're dating, we do it for the purpose of preparing for marriage, pursuing the good gift of marriage, but waiting for the blessing of marriage in God's time and in God's way. Jesus' words also remind us that marriage is a weighty thing. So don't overly romanticize it. Don't get your ideas of what marriage will be like from chick flicks. Marriage is humbling, hard work. And when we enter it, we do so making a commitment to another person that God seals by joining us together as one. A commitment that cannot see the future and so does not know what we may face together, but a commitment that is made before God. And so we are to approach marriage with prayer and a seriousness that reflects the vow we are making before Him. Well, how about those of us who are married? I don't know the state of your marriage. You may be in that happy season of new marriage. You may be in the seasoned joy of decades together as best friends. For some of you, marriage may be the greatest joy in life. For others of you, marriage may be a deep daily struggle, even a suffering and loneliness. But whichever state you are in, Jesus' words remind you, That if you are married, God himself has bound you together and made you one in body and in spirit. And as you live together, as you live for his glory and not for yourselves, for the honor of him who joined you together, this calling gives you the strength you need, even in the face of a difficult marriage. It gives you the confidence you need for the long journey of marriage. And it gives you an extra measure of joy when you consider the beauty of what God has done for you in the good marriages God has blessed you with. So here are Jesus' words. As we consider his pattern for marriage, may we set aside any slicing and dicing and trying to find good loopholes for divorce because I'm unhappy. May we set all of that aside to rest in God's will as expressed in his word that we may honor him and live for him as he has instructed us. Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning facing a serious topic that is so close 
to us in so many ways. Father, I pray that as we come to Jesus' words this morning, we would be renewed in our affirmation of marriage and the goodness and blessing of marriage as your idea from the beginning. May we be strengthened in our marriages and in our commitment to one another as we think of you joining us together as one. And yet, Father, as we face the grief of sin, because sin and the hardness of our hearts continues to to wreck the pattern you've set out for us, Father, may we grieve with those who have needed to be protected, who have needed this necessary guarding against such great harm and violation of the marriage covenant. Father, may we seek to honor you and to live for you and to live by the grace you give in whatever situation you have us. And we pray it in your will. Amen. The Westminster Pulpit is courtesy of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. You are welcome to worship with us on Sunday mornings at 8 or 11 a.m. To learn more or have questions about the gift of salvation through Christ Jesus our Savior, contact us at westpca.com. Thank you, and may Christ be glorified through this ministry, the Westminster Pulpit.